Hello, lovelies. You're listening to the podcast called There's Nothing Wrong With You. I'm Sam, your host, coming to you from the recording studio in my bedroom closet. So this episode is made up of two segments and deals with the topic of navigating challenges with family of origin during the holiday season and includes discussions about personal experiences of family estrangement. The first segment of this episode, which is also the longest, is a combo of an interview and a more open-ended conversation with someone who is a colleague and also one of my dearest friends in the entire world. The conversational segment is followed by a solo segment by yours truly. It's a lot shorter, and I offer some practical suggestions for things that you can do to make things easier for yourself at this time of year. Whether or not you are in relationship with your family of origin and whether or not you are spending time with them during the holiday season. Okay, so before we officially kick off, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to my guest for today's episode, Lindsay Tauscher. When referring to Lindsay, I'll alternate between she, her, hers, and they, them, theirs, since Lindsay's pronouns are both she and they. We met five or six years ago. Neither of us can remember exactly when, but eventually we became close friends and even lived together for some time. Actually, Lindsay and I lived together when I was going through my ADHD coach training. Nowadays, both of us are coaches. And in the past, we've had some professional collaborations. And at various points, we've even been one another's clients as well. As you'll hear in this episode, both Lindsay and I have personally experienced estrangement from members of our family of origin, specifically our parents. Please note that this conversation includes mentions of abuse, neglect, and childhood trauma. However, there are zero graphic or detailed descriptions of any of those experiences. One more thing before we dive into the rest of the episode, I want to read a brief bio for Lindsay so you have some idea of her professional background and what they offer. Lindsay is a trauma-informed somatic resilience coach and a NARM-informed professional. NARM is the neuroaffective relational model. Both of us are trained in it. Lindsay lives on unceded Pisgah-Taway land. Apologies if I did not pronounce that correctly. We might know this as the Washington, D.C. area. Lindsay is a queer non-binary femme, a proud cat and plant parent. She works with queer, gender-expansive, and neurodivergent leaders and visionaries who are ready to step fully into their authentic power and resilience to make the impact they've been dreaming of in their life, work, and relationships. Without further ado, let's dive in. Hello and welcome to There's Nothing Wrong With You, the podcast that examines and challenges the assumptions, stories, and beliefs that lead so many of us to ask ourselves the age-old question, what's wrong with me? I'm Sam, your host and a professional coach. I'll teach you how to shed the bullshit behind the belief that you are broken and need to be fixed. Together, we'll move beyond blame and shame, learn to accept our full humanity, and embrace this bizarre, joyful experience of being alive and human. Let's dive in. Hey, Lindsay. How's it going? Hi, it's good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. I know we've talked about doing this for a while, so I'm excited that the day has finally come. Me too. So I have a question for you, which is, I think, going to be a question that I ask of guests in the future as well. 
as you know, the name of this podcast is There's Nothing Wrong With You. And what's something that you've come to love about yourself that you used to think of as a unique or personal defect? Yeah. Yeah, I do really, really love this question. Something that I wouldn't necessarily say that I love it, but something that I'm starting to appreciate about myself more and more is that I I don't know if it's my neurodivergence or what, but I don't always understand things when people explain them to me. And I used to feel very embarrassed by that. It made it really hard to navigate like conversations with doctors or lawyers or like plumbers. And I have really come to a sort of peace within myself where instead of feeling like overwhelmed by shame that like I'm not able to make sense right away of what someone is asking of me or telling me, I just slow down and say to people, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Could you describe it differently? When you say this, are you trying to say that? Can you help me understand this? Because I want to be able to be responsive in the best possible way. And It's really been a game changer to realize that it's okay to not know. It's okay to ask questions. There's nothing like shameful or embarrassing about not getting something right away. And actually through knowing you and through knowing your work and the bit of work that we've done together around uh, strengths and processing styles, I have a much deeper understanding that people process information differently and we have different needs around understanding and processing information. And I feel like I've really come to a place where I can even like love and enjoy and embrace my very like visual, spatial, kinesthetic ways of processing in the world. And when something doesn't make perfect sense in like a verbal or a written explanation or God forbid a freaking contract, I can't read contracts to save my life. I always have to get help with that. That it's totally fine. And that I trust that like I have my gifts and how I understand and convey information and other people have theirs. And sometimes it just takes a little bit of time to get to the middle there. And there's nothing wrong with that. I wish I could do some sort of like wild applause right now. That was amazing. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to invite Lindsay on the show to talk about this topic today of navigating challenges with family of origin, specifically around expectations and conflict and estrangement, because we both have a sort of common experience in family estrangement, specifically being estranged from our parents. This seemed particularly relevant at the moment, given that as of the time of this recording, we've just finished up American Thanksgiving here in the States. And of course, there are the seasonal December holidays coming up. And talking about like family estrangement right now seems particularly relevant. I know for both Lindsay and I, for plenty of other people, this is a particularly challenging time of year if we have any form of or we've experienced any form of family estrangement. So I know for me, my kind of estrangement story with my father, it started one year right before the holidays and that it's made the holidays particularly challenging, I think, much more than they would have been otherwise because of that sort of timing of that. And if I'm not mistaken, Lindsay, I think that you had a somewhat like similar experience around this sort of time frame for when your story around estrangement began. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those things where uh, holidays are so laden with tradition and expectation and like this is how we do things that for whatever reason it 
creates an opportunity for estrangement to occur when there is something that is not matching up in the relationships. And often I think Mm. that's where the estrangement either like tends to occur in the family timeline or where it tends to be felt the most. And in my case, yeah, I also had a situation a number of probably almost 10 years ago now where I thought I was going home for the holidays. And then it was communicated to me that uh, I was not welcome and really kind of turned things upside down for me for a time. Certainly, I was not expecting that. I wasn't expecting that rejection at that particular moment. And I'm looking forward to like getting deeper into the conversation with you because as difficult as family estrangement can be and as heartbreaking as it can be, right? Either to face a rejection, particularly from parents, or to need to put up a boundary to create space from one's own parents. I think it can actually be a space and an opportunity for a real homecoming to your own authenticity and your own needs, desires, and an invitation into finding and connecting with the right people in relationships that really are like mutually loving and supportive rather than I think what can happen, especially for a lot of us like children of parents who have various sorts of issues where the relationships can feel very one-sided and that can kind of lead to these dynamics of conflict that ultimately end in estrangement. And that was kind of my experience. And it actually ended up being very, very generative in the long run. And so I'm excited to get more into that as well. I know we were talking about this the other day, and I really wish that we'd been recording it, but <laughs> we were having dinner in a restaurant, and that probably would have been weird. But I really loved what you had to say about the sort of like gifts and maybe positive impacts of parental estrangement and specifically a rift, that sort of like communicative rift, for lack of a better term, with your parent or one of your parents that they initiated it and you did not. And I wonder if you would be willing to share a little bit about what that's looked like for you, how that has had a positive impact on you and your life. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, a little bit about my background, I guess. My parents divorced when I was a teenager. And I had one parent who was an alcoholic and was not very present after the divorce, despite perhaps wanting to be, but not really having the skills or the, uh, you know, emotional availability there. And then my other parent who I experienced as being quite um, controlling, judgmental, and with whom I never really felt at ease around. And I was one of those kids where I grew up like not really feeling like I could be myself. And the emotional uh, dynamics in the family were like, subpar, let's say. (laughs) Uh, I think, you know, my parents intended to provide for me, did a pretty good job of that. But there was a real emotional misattunement my whole childhood. And I never really felt at ease with either of my parents. I never really felt like I had a strong connection with them for different reasons. And so the parent that I continued to live with after the divorce and where I was still going home for the holidays, you know, ritualistically every year, I kind of never thought that would end, either the traditions themselves or the relationship, which is one where I felt that I had to do a lot of compromising of who I was. I wasn't like welcome in the richness of my queerness, of my polyamory, of various like identities that 
were not uh, really understood or welcome within my family system. I grew up in a really waspy context, <laughs> like very, like, you know, Protestant, very normative. I say very Protestant. It doesn't, it makes it sound like I come from a very religious family. It's not necessarily that. It's more like I find that there are very strong cultural norms and respectability politics within wasp culture. I have a whole theory about that that I'll spare you right now, but I do find that that tends to be present. And I really felt like the black sheep growing up. Like I did not feel a part, really a part of my family. I didn't feel well understood. I didn't feel like I had like big emotions. I was very sensitive. I, you know, was kind of the odd one out. And so, you know, that coupled with this sort of like emotional misattunement that was really uh, persistent throughout not only my childhood, but into my uh, young adulthood, it created what I would describe as like a sort of internal split inside of me where I couldn't show up in my full self when I was in the presence of my family and particularly my parents. And so when I was told uh, not to come home for the holidays and, you know, specifically not to come home until I um, had met some criteria for how I was living that was not possible. It was out of reach for me. And that wasn't authentic to who I was and to what I valued. It basically created a situation where I realized I was never going to be welcome home again. It wasn't in so many words, right? But it was like, that was clear to me. And that first Christmas, which is the holiday we celebrate, you know, was super sad, I'm sure. Like, <laughs> I think I've blocked most of it out. But coming from a family with really strong holiday traditions, it was like a huge blow to be rejected from that, to not be welcome home, to not be able to continue participating in the shared experiences that we had all valued as a family. Because despite some of my family conflict and, and challenges, I actually felt pretty like I kind I felt the love that I think my family intended to convey particularly around the holidays. And so that rejection was was a really painful one and it took me many years to have to really find my footing in terms of how I celebrated the holidays and creating new traditions really out of nowhere almost because of that massive rupture where I'd been cut off from the entire family system. And I'm still finding my way through, you know, creating those traditions and making them really meaningful. But the thing that I found really to be a gift in that estrangement was that my parent in rejecting me did what I don't think I would have had the courage to do myself, which was to reject the family system that I was operating within and to reject the harmful and abusive relational dynamics that I had been subject to for so long, I didn't have that courage in my early 20s. I don't know if I would have had that courage now in my early to mid 30s. And so the void that that estrangement created actually brought me much deeper into a relationship with myself, into my own self-belonging and my own authenticity. And it put me in the position of making, you know, I didn't make the original choice, but I've chosen to maintain it. Because what I realized is that I don't want to be in relationship with people who require me to contort myself to their expectations and to never be who I am and to never express my values and to not live according to my own choices. And I don't think anyone wants to live that way. And unfortunately, I actually do think that a lot of adult children of parents in, with similar family dynamics 
feel very stuck and feel a great deal of stress and tension attempting to maintain the relationship while also not feeling they can be who they are, not feeling they could speak up when there are dynamics at play that are very upsetting and very unhealthy. And it's a very tough, you know, kind of between a rock and a hard place experience to have. And something about just being like outright rejected and cut off, it was extremely unmooring, of course, but it also created a freedom of possibility that was not available to me before. And I've had the great gift, I think, particularly as a queer person of really getting to build and cultivate my own chosen family. And even in recent years, coming back around to some of my um, non-immediate family relationships that I wasn't able to nurture back when I was like living in fear in connection with this parent who had then rejected me. And so getting to kind of rebuild my family from the ground up, both from within my blood ties and from outside of that, I think it really is a great gift. And I'm very, I've been very lucky in some ways because of getting to um, just show up with as who I am with the people that I really love and getting to choose who to really love and who to really bring into my life. Thank you. That was really powerful for me to listen to. And I'm sure people who are listening to this recording as well. I think that it was particularly powerful for me to hear your answer to that as somebody who is in, I think I would say your chosen family in particular, and seeing firsthand and up close, like how dedicated you are to cultivating family in this kind of new and personal way, and also these new traditions with your family. As someone as well who did not sort of initiate this communicative rupture or estrangement, whatever you want to call it, with at least one of my parents, and as somebody who probably never would have as well with that particular parent, at least, a lot of what you shared really aligns with my own experience. And I do think that it is status quo in our society and many other societies outside of the United States that it's essentially like unthinkable to a lot of people to not be in relationship with their family of origin, particularly parents, that it feels like this intense threat to our survival as adults to to even consider doing that. I've seen that up close and personal with other close friends and various partners throughout my life where they've had like intense issues with their parents. And I've seen people express a desire to not be in communication with at least one parent and to see this internal conflict of like, this is a thing I would really like for myself and I'm never allowed to have it. I've seen the struggles with that with my partners and friends. And I know that I probably would have been one of them, you know? So my story, not to get too much into the, the depressing elements, but as you know, Lindsay, but I'm just going to say this a little bit for the audience, is one of my parents I became estranged from from a fairly young age, relatively speaking, although we had some communication when I was an adult briefly. I actually essentially initiated that estrangement, but it was one of those situations where it was like the situation was really, quote, so bad on an almost objective level that if anyone hears that story from me, which few people do, but when anyone does hear that story, they're like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense that you would not be in relationship with that parent. My other parent, my father, it's quite a different story, actually. And 
one that I think is much harder for me to explain to people and harder for people to understand. And I think, gosh, how old am I? What year is it? I guess it was almost 15 years ago now where I was told one year when I was living abroad, uh, I had plans to go stay with my dad and his household for Christmas, which the family definitely celebrated. Uh, I was told that I was not welcome. And that year I know was was it was hard for me. I hardly remember it at this point. I think I've blocked a lot of it out. But also, I think in some ways it was easier for me at the time because my partner at the time was and his family were like secular Jews. We didn't really make a big deal out of Christmas. I was able to kind of, I don't know, throw myself into those the traditions of that other family. And I think that I've I've struggled with the holidays kind of after that relationship. And when I like lived in England where Christmas is like a big fucking deal. It's like everywhere for a quarter of the year. As we all know from watching Love Actually. <laughs> yes. Precisely. I think it, it has been difficult for me during the holidays because I think as you alluded to yourself, the holidays were actually a time where there was like less chaos in my family. Like we knew what we were going to do together. There was this structure that we we could follow that we could that I could count on. There was just a lot less chaos and I don't want to say less conflict, but just less less chaos than there was the rest of the year. And it felt like a safer, kind of a, a safer time of year or structure in which to be in relationship with my family before I became estranged from my father. And then after that, it was just the holidays have in various ways been a reminder for me of like, I no longer have, I mean, not that I'm no longer in relationship with my father, because that's kind of been there for a while, but that I don't have like access to this, what was a safe space or time of year for me to be in relationship with my family of origin. But it has meant that every year I've kind of re-engaged in this thought process fairly early on in the year, say maybe even like August, like, okay, what am I, what am I doing this year? Like, is it, you know, what do I want it to be like? Who do I want to spend it with? And I think that that's definitely been a gift because a lot of people don't feel that they have much of a choice in that regard. And it's been a real gift to have that freedom, as you said. I think the, the word you used was freedom. I realized that talking about our experiences of parental estrangement might not be something that most of uh, people have personally experienced themselves, although I'm sure there are a number of people out there who for whom that is shared. I think for most people, that is not something that they typically have experienced, but they're they have experienced like other potentially intense challenges around navigating the expectations of their family of origin, especially during the holidays. And also the sense of like obligation that comes with that and duty and it being like a moral right thing to spend the holiday with their family of origin in the way that like aligns very much with how their parents or grandparents or like previous generations just decided it was going to be. And I, I'm curious what your thoughts or experience are about the concept of obligation when it comes to navigating family dynamics during the holidays. I 
find that a lot of families, especially I will say families with some amount of abuse dynamics or dynamics even of not outright abuse, but let's say like emotional neglect and emotional misattunement, there can also be a very strong level of obligation and expectation of obligation within the family and to the family. And that is kind of a natural function of dysfunctional family dynamics is that part of how those dynamics are maintained is by imposing obligation on family members, particularly children, adult or youth children. And that's kind of how these um, these sort of insular, often like secretive family dynamics can function. And, and this will happen when there's abuse. It'll also happen, of course, with like addiction, but even other tendencies or, you know, patterns that are not very healthy there can really be this expectation that you stick with the family, you you don't tell anyone what's going on in the family. Part of what made my uh, upbringing quite difficult was that there was such an overwhelming sense of obligation. And I was told you put family first, always. But of course, the notion of putting family first was a very like codependent notion of what it meant to put family first. It wasn't coming from a place of choice. It wasn't coming from a place of authentic desire for connection or authentic presence of genuine connection. It was rather like, this is what is deemed right or correct. This is what is socially acceptable within our culture. And one of my parents was very, very sensitive to outside perception. So we always had to put on a happy face, not a lot of room for sadness or anger or other so-called negative, but in fact, you know, healthy, normal emotions. And part of how this showed up with the holiday was like, this is what we do every year. This is who you're obligated to. This is how we do it. And I actually did find a lot of stability in our holiday traditions, much like what you were sharing, Sam. But there's a way in which tradition can kind of mask the dysfunction in some family systems. And I think that, you know, I have a couple of clients uh, of my coaching clients who have dealt with some real challenges around parents who have addiction of some sort or parents who you know, they go home for the holidays, but then a parent is like drinking too much and it brings up all of the codependent dynamics from their childhood and all of this expectation that we, you know, we can't say anything about so-and-so's drinking issue. We just have to like tiptoe around it. And so those types of like, there's not freedom to express, communicate, or relate authentically because we're protecting a, you know, troubling pattern within the family or within the experience of a particular family member who has some authority, all of this can create a, um, you know, kind of like a storm of like emotional challenges if you are the adult child expected to go home and continue to tolerate what you had no choice to tolerate when you were younger. And there's a real piece, I think, around whether it's a, you know, situation of family estrangement or whether it is finding intentional ways to navigate the holidays and to navigate being in presence with family of origin that are healthier, that are more true to your own needs, your own comfort, your own uh, desire for connection, and where maybe it does not feel safe or healthy to have too much connection. Like There's a real piece of agency there that I think we the gift of all of this is that we get to really get clear about what it is that we are willing to tolerate, what we are not willing to tolerate, what feels safe, what doesn't feel safe. And this is where, of course, boundaries come into play. And I have to say, actually, 
it's so funny because this memory is coming back to me as we speak because I think I've had, you know, quite a bit of some of my challenges around my family have kind of like blocked out and all of that stuff mm-hmm. that kind of naturally happens with traumatic memory. But there was a point, it was before that initial estra- the estrangement that I described earlier on where there had been a rupture with that same parent, but that parent really, really wanted to see me again. I had been abroad. I was coming back for the Christmas holidays and I was told like, no, it's really important that you come home. We really do want to see you. And there was this piece of me where I was like, I'm not going to just tolerate everything I've tolerated before. And I agreed to come home, but I was very clear on the conditions. I was lucky because at that point in my life, I had my own car. I used to not. I used to be dependent on my family to drive me to and from the train station, which was, you know, in the next city. I I lived in a suburb. The train station was in a city. I couldn't easily get there on my own. But at that point, I did have my own car. And so what I said was, I will come, come home for Christmas. I'll celebrate it with you. I will leave if you are mean to me. I will leave if you talk down to me. I will leave if you disrespect me. I will leave if you you know, make fun of me and attempt to put me down, humiliate me, or these various other sort of emotional, verbal, you know, forms of disrespect, harm, Mm -hmm. all of that. And again, this was the year before the estrangement occurred. And then the estrangement occurred. And this was a one-off experience for me. But I do have to say, like, it was the best experience that I had had of a holiday with my family because I made my terms really clear. I had made my terms very, very clear that I was not going to just let this stuff that I had from childhood when I had no choice, of course, I wasn't going to let this stuff slide. I was an adult. I was going to be treated like an adult and I was going to be respected as a participating member of the family and not, you know, treated with that sort of meanness or disregard. And I don't think my parent was expecting for me to set terms for the shared holiday. And when I did, they were actually respected because I I knew I could leave. And of course, the ability to leave has so much to do with our access to resources. It has so much to do with like how much freedom of movement we have. But I think that to the extent that it's available and possible, one of the only forms of leverage that an adult child has in a relationship with their parents is how much they will or won't participate in their parents' lives and how much they will and won't participate in the family. And it's, you know, when I say leverage, it sounds a bit like transactional. And I don't mean it in that way. I mean that for those of us who are in relationship with family members where we do need some amount of self-protection, where we can't be fully invested, we can't be fully open because they're not safe people for us when we get really deep down with it, that's where we really want to get focused on how we can take care of ourselves and get really, really clear about what we will and won't accept. And sometimes that results in a better relationship. And sometimes it results in not a relationship or less of a relationship. But either way, we're actually leaning in to authentic connection by saying that I want to connect with you on terms that are safe and mutually respectful. And I am unwilling to pretend to be okay with behaviors and manners of speaking to me that actually leave me feeling like shit. You don't want to go home and feel like shit, right? Especially it costs money to travel. (laughs) (laughs) Even if it's a drive to the next town or if it's a flight across the country, like 
that is your precious time, your precious energy and resources, especially if you're in the United States, you probably don't have a lot of time off and you probably don't want to spend it being miserable. And so this is where I really find that like boundaries are so key. And yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, Sam. I know it's a topic of great interest to you as well. And I'm sure we could say much more about it. Yeah. So I think you've brought up a really important point about like what what is a boundary. And I know there's been more talk about this, I think, on social media somewhat recently, although I'm not super present on social media at the moment, about like the difference between a, a rule and a boundary and like a rule that we have for somebody else's behavior versus our boundary about when that behavior comes up. And you mentioned when you went back for the holiday one year, you said, if you do this, then I will leave. If you do that, then I will leave. And that was a boundary as opposed to you saying like, don't speak to me like that. It was, if you speak to me like this, Mm -hmm. this is the action I will take. This is, you know, the agency that I have essentially. And I find it really important to just acknowledge that is a boundary. And what you said about leverage, I mean, I, I think that is, and I'm whatever term or like vocabulary you use to refer to that, that is an essential part of a boundary. And it doesn't mean that if someone's home for the holiday that their parent speaks to them disrespectfully or whatever, that if they can't leave, then they, they're not allowed to have a boundary or there isn't some other thing that they can do. There absolutely is in almost every situation. Maybe they won't be able to like just hop in the car and like drive away and not come back or whatever, but they might be able to go into the other room or go out for a walk or something like that or 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 simply like not participate in the same way that they otherwise would have been expected to based on the sense of obligation and i think that that is really key for a lot of people who have an experience of these challenges and family dynamics that are not actually like fully estranged or or just not present with family during the holidays. So yeah, thank you for for giving us a really great example of how to how to set boundaries. <laughs> I think you said that that is something that you'd forgotten about until we started talking about it and I don't remember ever hearing that story from you before. So it's very apt as an example. Definitely. And I think you know it's worth expounding upon boundaries that topic a little bit further because as you said there is a difference between a boundary and a rule and I do a lot of coaching with my clients around the topic of boundaries and there's often quite a bit of confusion around what a boundary is what it's not and what it means for our relationships why we might employ boundaries and often there's a mistaken assumption that boundaries are about controlling other people's behavior and I want to be really clear that it's it's really the opposite of that. It is not about controlling other people. It's not about taking away their agency. It's about operating from your own place of agency and getting really clear about what situations and what dynamics you will and won't participate in. So, for example, like, my parents are free to say whatever they want when I'm not there. That's not within my control. It's not my job to control how people speak to me when I'm not in their presence. It's not my job. It were my responsibility and I can't 
actually stop someone from doing something that they want to do on their own time. But what I can do is say, I'm not okay with being made fun of, or I'm not okay with being put down. Or if you say something racist, I'm going to walk away. I don't participate in conversations with a bunch of unchecked, you know, racist statements. Uh, that's not that's not acceptable to me. If you're going to say something transphobic, that's not acceptable to me. You can do that when I'm not there, but I'm not going to be there for it. And so that's different than a rule, which is like, I am the arbiter of what other people are allowed to say and do and the choices they're allowed to make. And in fact, I think that there's an interesting and very like potentially confusing dynamic, particularly for children, adult children who were raised in some amount of abuse, emotional neglect, or kind of like manipulative sort of family dynamics where our parents may have imposed a bunch of rules on us. And when we reject those rules out of respect for our own internal authenticity and our own boundaries, we then get told that we're attempting to control. And there's a lack of nuance that a boundary is not an attempt to control someone else. It's a choice about what we will and won't participate in. And it's very, very easy to kind of be manipulated and to have that. And I don't mean it in a malicious way. I mean, I think there's genuinely, especially if we don't have like super psychologically and emotionally healthy parents, they genuinely do think oftentimes that whatever they are demanding is acceptable. But when you become the adult child, you're no longer under their control. What you might expect, that's not acceptable, right? They're used to being the authority. In healthy family relationships, parents recognize and support and encourage the independence of their children as they grow up. But in unhealthy and codependent family dynamics, that's where like we're often told as adult children, well, you're it's unacceptable for you to have that job or for you to date that person or for you to get that tattoo or do this thing with your own body. And those are attempts to impose rules. And so I think we have to really hold a lot of intention and care around navigating these dynamics and getting really clear about what our intentions are within ourselves as we are attempting to find middle ground in spending time with perhaps difficult family members and knowing that like you are within your own control and other people are not and vice versa. They are within their control and they cannot control you if you are choosing to exercise your agency where it is available to you, recognizing that we don't all have equal access to choice depending on our circumstances. And I think the other thing you spoke to, Sam, that I want to maybe like give words to is that boundaries have natural consequences. And consequences are not punishments. That's so important because our parent might feel punished mm-hmm. if we choose not to participate. Like, let's say even if you're like, my family's religious, I'm not religious, I do no longer feel comfortable going to church, but I'm willing to spend, you know, open gifts around the Christmas tree to have Christmas dinner together. But if I'm not comfortable going to church and I'm going to bow out of that tradition, that's just like that's not punishing your family. That's that's you taking care of yourself because that's just not the right or maybe even a, a safe environment depending on what the church is like. And so when we set a boundary, it has a natural consequence, which is if you're going to try to overstep my boundary, then there's a way in which I'm going to adjust how I'm relating and or remove myself from the relationship. But it doesn't mean that you're punishing. Punishing is an intent to hurt 
or to upset someone or to make them feel bad. A boundary is all about being true and authentic to your needs, your desires, your values, and your priorities. And the more that we can kind of reside in that internal sense of authenticity, the clearer our boundaries get because we get really clear about what is and isn't ours to carry. And that includes like not making ourselves responsible for our family's expectations of us, not making ourselves responsible for other people's perceptions of us. We get to get really energetically clear about those things when we're working intentionally with our boundaries. I wonder, could you say a bit more about like what you mean by responsibility or we're not responsible for any particular thing, like what you mean by that and how what that can look like for someone in practice? Yeah. So some of the things that we are responsible for in this world, I would consider this kind of like a universal truth. I think some people will agree or disagree, but we're responsible for what we say. We're responsible for what we do. We're responsible for taking care of our own bodies. We're responsible for advocating for our own needs, like these things that no one else can do for us and, you know, so on and so forth from there. But what we're not responsible for is other people's expectations, contorting ourselves and our lives in order to meet other people's expectations. Like that's not ours to carry. We're not responsible for other people's feelings. I don't mean that we oughtn't to have like empathy and compassion. We can absolutely have empathy. We can absolutely have compassion. But when we make ourselves responsible for someone else's feelings, and this is so common in codependent family dynamics where like, let's say like, you know, there's a parent who's prone to getting mad and lashing out and then everyone else has to then tiptoe around them to make them comfortable, to bring them back, to try to manipulate the situation so that parent settles down, for example. That might be a survival strategy that we have no choice but to engage in when we're a child, but it's very common to carry this into adulthood and not realize that like you actually don't have to caretake the parent who's lashing out. And I don't mean like authentic like emotion. We all get to have space for expressing difficult emotions in consensual ways with the people around us. I mean the sort of dynamics that are controlling, manipulative, overbearing and all of that. And so when we caretake other people's feelings at our own expense, we're creating a rupture in our relationship with ourselves in order to avoid an appropriate and healthy rupture in a relationship with another person. Conflict is actually not something to strictly be avoided at all costs. And some of us have a very healthy view of conflict, but I think probably you and me, Sam, and a lot of folks who grew up with abusive and neglectful family dynamics, you don't learn that conflict is a healthy, necessary part of relationship when you're a kid. It like can be well into adulthood before we realize that actually, if someone is repeatedly hurting us, it is appropriate to protest, to resist that. It's appropriate to name it. It's appropriate to get really clear about what we require to be in relationship with them and then to communicate that. Like that's where the boundaries come in. And so ideally, healthy conflict is actually really generative. If you're in relationship with someone who cannot tolerate being in conflict, either with you or in general, that's going to be a very hard relationship to navigate. But 
people who really, really care about being in relationship with you can and will learn the skills to navigate conflict when you make your needs and make your desires clear. Like they will either have a fit, (laughs) maybe they'll have a fit and they'll come back around and they will change their behavior if it's a matter of being able to relate to you, if that's what they really value. And if what they decide is they're going to reject you because you decided to name the pattern of alcoholism or name the pattern of making fun of your body or like, you know, cruel snarky comments about like your weight, your body, your eating, your gender, your your employment, whatever that may be. And their response to, hey, this is not okay. This is not acceptable. It's really hurting me. And I want to be in relationship with you, but I cannot have you talk to me that way. That fucking hurts. And it it's making it hard for me to be open and connected with you. If their response to that is, I'm unwilling to change, then you have really valuable information that you can use, as painful as that may be, that information can really help to inform how you might choose to relate to them or not going forward. And that might mean, I don't do this certain type of event with you where you have a tendency to lash out or this other person. Mm -hmm. It might mean like, I am willing to be in your presence, but I'm going to bring my partner. Like my partner is my buffer or my chaperone, assuming the partner is totally willing to, you know, show up in that way. Like that can be a kind of safer middle ground. I had an event early on in some of these ruptures that led to the estrangement where I was told that I absolutely had to come home for a family member's birthday and I absolutely had to do it alone. And I was like, this is not safe for me to do alone. And so I brought my partner at the time and like, Did the controlling parent like that? No. Did it help me survive the event? It sure did. And sometimes these things are necessary. And so we get to really get super true to ourselves about like, what's going to help the situation? What's going to make it better? How am I willing to show up? Where am I willing to compromise in a way that doesn't sublimate my own genuine needs? And is this parent or this family member willing to adapt if I'm showing up respectfully with a little bit more like armored around advocating for my own needs, hopefully they adopt. And if they don't, well, that's really, really important information to have. And as painful as it is, I think it's almost always better to know how people really regard you and how much they really do or do not value your presence in their life. And sometimes that's how we end up at estrangement. And that's where estrangement can actually end up feeling like the best possible option is because we've gotten really, really clear about what is and is not available within the relationship with that person at that time. Yeah, I think that is, that's such a good point. Thank you for all of that. I know for me to sort of circle back to some of the things we said towards the beginning, one of the gifts of parental estrangement for me has been that I think that if I continued to be in relationship with that parent, that I would probably be reproducing a lot more of the the like very harmful intergenerational like family dynamics. I'd probably be reproducing them a lot more than I currently am. And I think that that's like that's been like hugely helpful to the trajectory of my life. I know that this isn't necessarily possible or desirable for everyone, but I do long for a world where it does feel possible for people to be able to decide, hey, like, I am willing to be in relationship with you 
with these healthy dynamics in place. And if that's not possible, then it's actually better to not be in relationship with that person rather than like continue to stay in that dynamic with them. Because as I mentioned, like I think that if that felt like a possibility, we would be much less likely to like carry those relational patterns forward in usually in an unconscious way. And we'd be less likely to like pass those things on to to future generations as well. So this is Sam, and you've reached the final segment of this episode, which I am going to do solo. If it sounds like the conversation with Lindsay from the previous segment ended rather abruptly, that's because it did. We decided to schedule a second recording session on a different day when we had more time to focus on discussing the topic of chosen family. So you'll be able to hear part two of my conversation with Lindsay in the next episode. For now, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about some of the existing research about family estrangement, since this isn't something that uh, was covered in the previous segment. Before I move on to offering some practical tips or things that you can do to make your life easier at this time of year, regardless of whether you have an existing relationship with your family of origin or not, regardless of the quality of that relationship, and whether or not you are going to be spending time with them during the holiday season this year. Perhaps unsurprisingly, there's not a lot of robust research out there about family estrangement. For the research that does exist, I hesitate to draw conclusions and make generalizations because a lot of it seems to be very focused on the United States and was conducted in universities and so forth and really only included undergraduate and graduate students. Some of the Research does include people from the more general population, but I just want to put that caveat in there before I discuss percentages of people who experience family estrangement. One of the reasons I want to talk about this a little bit is because I think a lot of people think that family estrangement is something that's not commonly experienced. Of course, it is an example of a very rigid boundary, someone drawing a very rigid boundary. But it's more common than you might think and certainly was more common than I thought it would be based on the research I found. I want to acknowledge, though, that there's going to be a lot of variability in family estrangement experiences and rates of estrangement across cultures and geographical locations, nation states, and so on. And of course, there's going to be a lot of variability based on factors like socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, and so on. With all of that preamble out of the way, there is a study that was conducted by the author of a book called Fault Lines. His name's Carl Pilmer. He conducted a survey of American adults. Over 1,300 people were included in the survey. They were 18 years of age and older. And the survey results showed that 27% of people in this sample had experienced family estrangement. 10% of the study participants reported being estranged from a parent or child. 8% were estranged from a sibling. And 9% were estranged from extended family members like aunts and uncles and so on. All of those percentages were higher than I expected, especially the overall 
of the study of participants who had just in general reported being cut off from a family member. But I want to point out that because this was a self-reported data for this survey, that it's probably underreported. It's very stigmatized to be estranged from family, especially parents and children, I think. So I think it's safe to say that there's high likelihood that the percentage in the overall population could be higher. And again, there's a lot of variability. There can be a lot of variability of experiences of family estrangement across different demographic factors. Anyway, so most people don't want to completely disconnect from significant family relationships. And despite the fact that I am estranged from parents, I wouldn't necessarily personally advocate this in general. I wouldn't personally advocate family estrangement, I should say. In most situations, it's not necessary. And there are more nuanced and flexible boundaries that one can assert in most cases. I'm going to go ahead and provide some links to some of the research around family estrangement in the show notes. So you don't have to just believe what I'm saying. You can look at the research for yourself as well. The main reason I wanted to mention this research and the stats around family estrangement experiences at all is because they were higher than I expected. And I think experiences of family estrangement are more common than we might assume. If you as a listener are experiencing or have experienced periods of family estrangement, I want you to know that, you know, you're not alone. You not only get to listen to me and my guest earlier talk about our personal experiences, but you can, I guess, take comfort in knowing from the research that you are not alone in this experience. With that said, I want to take the next few minutes to offer some kind of practical suggestions and ideas for things that you can do to make things feel a bit easier for yourself during the current holiday season and future holiday seasons, whether or not you're spending time with your family of origin and however you are spending that time. So for those of you who are going to spend time with your family of origin during the holiday season and you might experience, you know, challenges or tension in your relationship with those people. I have a couple suggestions. So before the holiday event or travels or time that you're going to spend with them, really set aside some time for yourself to write about what your needs, boundaries, and desires are and what is and isn't acceptable to you in terms of other people's behavior, treatment of you and one another, and conversation topics, and so on. You can explore what you will or won't do as a a sort of natural consequence to the behaviors from others that are not acceptable to you. This can, you know, range from a simple no or polite decline to something more direct, you know, to even having an escape plan where you actually just leave the event, leave the area, go back home, essentially, to keep yourself safe and, you know, calm and sane as possible, to care for yourself, basically. After doing this initial phase of writing for yourself, you could also consider writing something up 
that you can share with the people in your family of origin who you'll be spending time with during the holiday season. You share it with them in advance. Perhaps, I know for some people, it's easier to communicate by email to like lay it all out that way or text or something like that. Put it in writing so it's really clear. If necessary, you can refer back to it and that sort of thing. So apart from that, if you're staying in the home of a family member and maybe you don't have as much privacy as you normally do, maybe you don't have any privacy really when you're there, consider in advance what your options are for taking a break so you can get some alone time outside of your family member's home. Can you go for a walk in the neighborhood? Is there a park nearby? Is there any way that you can have access to some independent transit? You know, is there a bicycle you can use? Can you take the bus? Does the bus run on, you know, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and all of that? Do you have maybe some some childhood friends nearby who you could see if you really needed to get a break from your family members? I'm sure a lot of you have thought of this kind of stuff already, but I think it's useful to offer it, you know, as specific, explicit ways to make things easier for yourself. Sometimes people just need the permission that it's actually healthy and okay to do these things. And I should say permission, I mean, validation from other people, maybe even me, a podcast host, to do the things you need to do to take care of yourself. If you have close loved ones outside of your family of origin who you could maintain some sort of contact with when you are spending the holidays with your family of origin, getting support from other people, whether that's your partner, your friends, other people in what I'll call your chosen family, who maybe you aren't spending the holidays with, but staying in contact with them while you are spending time with your family of origin is often really effective and legit strategy for making it through this time and making it easier for yourself. If you are not spending time with family of origin this holiday season or in future holiday seasons, I also have some things to offer you to make this feel easier for yourself. So for those of you who are, you know, estranged from your family of origin and aren't going to be spending the holidays with them, or maybe you just can't spend the holidays with them for whatever reason, there are a few things I can offer you as well. I am a huge, huge advocate of getting involved in volunteering during this time of year. Well, all you know, not just this time of year, but especially this time of year as somebody who's experienced family estrangement and, you know, had some years where I otherwise might have spent the holiday alone and and not well resourced to do so. It really was truly such an amazing experience to volunteer on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and the week between Christmas Day and New Year's. It really was really powerful and got me out of my own head and was really great. I did not fall into a depressive slump or, you know, fall into a rut of having a pity party, which I otherwise might have. Anyway, so you can volunteer with a nonprofit organization that serves people who are experiencing homelessness, houselessness, or maybe just isolation during the holidays. At this point in the year, I'm recording this in early-ish to mid-December. 
it might be a little late to get involved in like formal volunteering efforts. A lot of big nonprofits will close their volunteer applications for the holiday season, maybe in like October, or early November, but it's still worth checking with them nonetheless. You could also get involved in a more local mutual aid group or some more informal neighborhood efforts in this regard. If a big nonprofit isn't available to you, or maybe you prefer to stay super local in your neighborhood and you really like participating in mutual aid efforts, you could provide cooked meals, you know, food as in ingredients and groceries to people. And potentially you can even provide companionship to people who would otherwise be really isolated and alone at this time of year. I know that that can be a, a huge issue for elderly people and LGBTQ youth as well who can't spend time with family of origin or, you know, it's not safe for them to do so. You could even cook or bake food for your neighbors. Imagine that. I say this as somebody who lives in New York City and while I'm somewhat familiar with my current neighbors, we're not best buds, but that's not because I've met them and disliked them, to be clear. You could host your own holiday meal or celebration, inviting other people who can't or don't spend the holidays with their family of origin. Or maybe there are people in your wider social network who will be spending the holidays with one or two family members who are maybe visiting. However, maybe they would enjoy spending time with a larger group of people with that family member you could invite those people along as well or otherwise coordinate. If you live in a big city or metropolitan area, you could investigate what's open on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. In large cities in the United States, cinemas and many types of restaurants, but I guess the kind of classic is Chinese restaurants, are often open for business. If you can't or don't want to go out you and you just want to stay home and that feels nice and cozy, you can take the, the time to have a movie marathon at home that maybe you otherwise wouldn't allow yourself to have the rest of the year because you'd just be like, I don't have time and I can't stay up late or it, you know, maybe it just feels too indulgent or whatever. This is a great time to do all of those things. You could take a bath that lasts like two or three hours or whatever. You could read all day. You could cook a really banging meal for yourself. If you get tired of doing all of the, you know, indulgent, super fun things, you could take some time to reflect. Reflect on how the year's gone. You can plan for the next year. Figure out what you really want to do next year. What do you want to do during the holidays in the future? How do you want to feel? It's going to be a really great time to reflect on that and to really focus on figuring out what you want how you want to feel, and cultivating that. Really invest the time, energy, and effort in figuring out what you actually want, how you actually want to feel at this time of year, and start putting plans in place now so that you can do that in the future. Until next time, I love you, and I love all of your flaws. There is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you. Thank you for listening to There's Nothing Wrong With You. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from listening to this episode, please share it with them. To learn more about me and my work, please visit www.unconventionalmindscoaching.com. And please feel free to get in touch with me to share your thoughts and suggestions at contact at unconventionalmindscoaching.com. Thank you and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.